This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, the Reverend L. Sharpton, founder and president of the National Action Network, offers his thoughts on how activism can move America forward. He's interviewed by Washington Post columnist Jonathan Capehart. Reverend Sharpton, I want to start this conversation about your book by quoting something you wrote towards the end of your book, which I think is a great jumping off point for this conversation. You write, I tell everyone that the hardest job of being a preacher is to eulogize the life of someone who did nothing. My friends, it is harder still to eulogize the lifeblood of a country who did nothing. And then you later go on and say, and so I beg of you, give me something to work with when your time comes and I'm standing before your family as they prepare to take you to God. Let there be something worthy, something of merit that you did for your fellow man that helped to lift them. The name of your book, as we all know, is Rise Up. Talk more about that, why it is imperative, why you believe it's imperative for people to give folks like you and for the rest of us something to, to eulogize, to look up to. I think the definition of one's existence is what they do in life. At the end of life, uh, the only thing that will matter is what you did beyond your own particular, uh, just making a living and having a, a home and having material things. But what was the value of your existence? Did it change anything? Did it continue anything of significance? And I think people really don't uh, think about that. Uh, what, what brought that to mind, I did the eulogy for Michael Jackson, who was the biggest pop star of his time. And when we were coming out of the cemetery that night after I did the final eulogy at his, uh, at his burial, uh, a well-known artist that I won't name said to me, uh, Reverend, you really moved me in your eulogy for Michael. And uh, if I go first, I want you to do one for me like that. And I looked at him and said, uh, well, you're going to give me something to work with. I mean, Michael broke records in terms of drawing people to his concerts and the records he sold and some of the humanitarian work he did. Uh, this particular artist had a hot record at one time, but never really did anything. And I think people never really think about all of us at some point is going to die. What statement did our life make? And I think that that is all depending on the times in which you live and the challenges that you faced, whether you met those challenges in a broader societal context or not. And I, I think people often don't think there's one thing about making a living, there's another thing about making a life that was worth living. You know, in, in reading your book, it, it's, it's several books in, in one to my mind, 
on the one hand, it could be read as uh, maybe he's going to run for elective office again because you talk about specific policies and issues that are facing the country and what you think should be done. Then on the other hand, it's, it, it's a memoir. You, you weave your personal story through, through all of the chapters and we get to find out uh, bits and pieces because you've written other books where your life factors more prominently, but we get to see you know, who you are, where you came from and how it fits with the times that we're in. And then it's also a bit of a, a, of a, of a how-to book when it comes to the advice that you give that you give to activists. Why did you decide in writing Rise Up to do your book in, in that way? I wanted to say that I feel that between the last two administrations, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, that we have in a very graphic, unmistakable way, seen the two roads that this country continues to wrestle with, but we see it more graphically in the last two administrations. We see Obama that in many ways continued the tradition of continuing to fight for civil liberties and civil rights and an and inclusive society, whether it was African-Americans or women or LGBTQ or, or people of, of lower income levels. And on the Trump level, we saw the reverse of that an exclusionary policy when it came to blacks, when it came to uh, women, when it came to immigrants, when it came to LGBTQ. And I wanted to challenge people on both roads uh, there, which one this country will choose. And then if they decided to choose uh, a road that I chose, which was more in the uh, uh, a tradition that created a, a Barack Obama, here are some practical ways to do it. And I put in life experiences because I wanted the people to know that I came to these conclusions because I had done certain things in life that uh, was instructive to me. Uh, and I really think that we're at a crossroads. I think that this country uh, has got to choose one way or another. And there's been this constant battle since the founding of the country. And I think as we are now in the 21st century, we have to make a real hard decision. And I want people to know whether they agree with me or not, agree with the road I chose or not, how I came to those conclusions. And therefore, this is the conclusion they need to make. But whatever decision you make, you don't have to do it my way. You may do it in a small context. It may be in your home. It may be in your neighborhood, maybe in your church or your bingo club, but everybody has practical ways of being active. So I wanted to do all of that in one book because I wanted to make people think, make people committed, and then once you make a commitment, people always say, well, what do I do? I can't lead a march. I can't mm -hmm. uh, do something in mass. Everybody can do something, and I give them ways of doing that. I mean, that was the one thing that I found. I didn't see it coming. When I got to that part, I didn't see it coming. And then the advice that you give, having, having known you and covered you for 30 years, to say, oh, you know what? Actually, yes, I see that. He's he literally practices what he literally preaches. Um, but I want to bring you to the beginning of the book, because you do not spare anyone, not the president, 
not liberals, not the Republican Party. And I want to start with, with this group of people who you have dubbed latte liberals. Um, you've been talking about it a lot, uh, your books, before your book came out. But talk about latte liberals. Who are they? And why are they so problematic within the Democratic Party, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? I think that the latte liberal is those that are the armchair kind of uh, people that always want to set the tone, set the policy, set where we're going, but never get their hands dirty, never get involved. They are, uh, have assigned themselves to leadership, but they're not leading anyone. They are not on the ground. So in the last decade, uh, we had every battle in the civil rights area from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd. And we always had the Latte liberals that would interpret for us what the movement ought to be doing, but they were not on the ground trying to deal with how people felt, how people that were angry, how they would react, how people that were angry on the other side, how they would react, how you deal with people that want to do something and didn't know what to do. They would sit back sipping lattes, having parlor sessions, discussing great thoughts, but never put any feet to action. And that those to me seem to be uh, very much an obstacle because what they theorize and what they uh, proselytize may not work functionally. It's easy to sit back in a living room parlor and sip a latte or sit up in a editorial room or in a studio <laughs> and, and sprout great wisdom. If you're not on the ground dealing with people that are hurt and angry or dealing with people on the other side of the barricade that are just as adamant in their beliefs. And a lot of things that you have to do practically is based on being in action. One of, one of the things that I've always been is involved. And I talk about some of that involvement. Now you may make errors in, in your involvement, but a lot of that is because you're moving and reacting in real time to real events and real people. So I'm dealing with, if I'm dealing with a case of racial violence or police violence, I'm dealing with the victims, the victims' families, the immediate community, the reaction. And these are not people that are activists or politically up to the last uh, uh, situation that we may uh, interpret as this is the politics of the time. They're not in the worst trending, they're dealing with a real matter and how you deal with that matter in the broader context of what is going on in the social order is what you have to learn how to deal with and a latte liberal doesn't have to deal with that so if i'm dealing with a mother of a police brutality victim i've got to deal with her pain i've got to deal with her reaction i've got to deal with what she wants done or not done in the name of the uh, victim that they were the mother of and the latte liberal never talks to that mother, doesn't know that that mother is as concerned about how am I going to bury my child, the cost of it, they may not have been insured. How am I dealing with a broken family that may have not come together? All of that, and, and the latte liberal will be judgmental, but never active. And they have become, in my uh, judgment, just as much as an impediment as those on the other side, because they are 
so intellectual that they're not useful. One of the things you also say is that they're more interested in, in purity, in policy purity, than in actually getting anything done. They seem to have uh, that class of people, that group of people, rigid this, that, you know, here's my 10 point program. And if you're not with those 10 points, then all of a sudden you are in, uh, uh, incorrect. You are not useful. Well, I might agree with eight of the points, but two of the points I don't feel functionally works for the people that I'm trying to work with and then trying to help serve. And then they dismiss everything else. And this purity test, I think, is what has cost a lot of moving forward. In politics, for example, they would give a purity test to a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden. And there are things I disagree with both of them. But I felt their overall direction was worthy of support based on who was opposing them. And if you say it's my way, you have to check up all of my 10 boxes, again, going to the 10 point list. If you don't do that, then I'm opposed to you. It ends up serving the opposition to all of us rather than getting something done. When you're dealing with real pain, real issues with people on the ground, sometimes you have to work with people that you may have some disagreements on some points, but the overall thrust is gonna to help to position where you wanna position people toward or moving down the right road. You know, you, you write something uh, else in your book about the latte liberal that I want you to expand on. You write, a latte liberal may mean well, but it's lack of empathy or understanding of the basic inequalities that go hand in hand with bigotry, racism, and economic disparity make him suspect to anyone struggling to get a foothold, foothold in the American dream. I'd go so far as to say that if latte liberals had a better sense of these issues and their black and brown and immigrant brothers, there'd be no need for someone like me. I wrote in the margins, um, when I read that, I wrote Bernie critique. Talk more, I think, talk more about that. <laughs> I think that what I, I was saying is that the, the people that are in black and brown communities and, and in some uh, working class and even poor white communities and in the LGBT community, these are people that are living with a lot of latte liberals are reading about. So they are dealing with how they can analyze the pain without expressing the pain and expressing the reaction to the pain and expressing the outrage. When I go to a scene like George Floyd, when the family called me, I'm standing there on the corner where he literally died, narrating his own death on video with a knee on his neck. I'm thinking about the human suffering this man had while they're analyzing the law. The law is applicable, but who's gonna express the inhumane treatment? Who's gonna express the outrage of people watching a man dying? And I think that they're so caught up in their analysis and fitting it into the phalanx of their thought of the time that they miss the actual fact this is a human being, somebody's father, somebody's brother, or somebody's son that laid there and was killed with eight minutes and 46 seconds. So by the time they get through half of their analysis, 
they're rejected because it's like, you don't feel my pain. Someone like me expresses the pain and the outrage because when I look at a George Floyd or a Trayvon or a Eric Garner, I say that could have been me. And in parts in my life journey, it was me. And I'm not talking about some analysis I learned. I'm talking about a situation that I've had to live in. And they never get there, which is why they appear useless. In that gap, those of us that have the courage and ability to express that pain become necessary because at first and foremost, someone in that predicament wants somebody to understand, I am hurting, this is not fair, this is not right, I'm being treated wrong. And it emanates very well in the expression, those three brilliant sisters named Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. we matter. First act like I matter. I'm not some object to be analyzed. I'm something that ought to be regarded, something that ought to be respected, and therefore to be treated this way. Now we can get to the social uh, 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 formula that you want or the legal uh, kind of analysis that you want to get to. But first, you must certify and confirm you understand that I've been violated as a person. I want to I, I want to come back to that in a second because there was something you you wrote in the book that actually surprised me. You mean you mentioned Trayvon Martin, you mentioned Eric Garner, and there have been countless other victims of of uh, fatal police violence or vigilante violence. Ahmed Arbery comes to mind, but you wrote in the book that when you went, I think it was when you went to Minneapolis um, to see the site where George Floyd was, was killed under the, under the knee of a police officer, that that, that got to you. That, I think, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said it, it broke you. Why, of all the things that you've done over all of these decades, what was it about that particular circumstance, that particular victim, that particular location uh, or city that moved you or affected you that way? When, when I walked, first of all, when I got the call, Ben Crump, the attorney called me and said the family would like me involved. And uh, he said that, would you go to Minneapolis and, and kind of stand up on this issue? And I told him, absolutely. And I called Eric Garner's mother. And I said, I'm going to Minneapolis. Uh, one of, the, uh, of our supporters is going to give us a private plane to go. Would you go with me? Because it was in the middle of the pandemic. None of us were flying. There were very few flights at that uh, uh, time. And uh, I knew she was concerned, as all of us was, about going out, particularly traveling during COVID-19. She said, I'm already packed. So we got on this private plane and went to Minneapolis. We land. We go as I've gone for the last 35 years, it seems. But when we pulled up in the middle of this community, and then we walked over, we met with some of the local activists at a church that was diagonal to uh, the, the uh, corner that uh, uh, George was killed on. When we walked up and I looked at this curve where this man laid, and I looked at the stores that was there, and I thought about this young lady had walked by and videotaped this man laying there in the gutter. This was right off the curb in broad daylight with this knee on his neck. It just hit me how vicious was this. 
And what a way to die. This man was laying in this gutter begging for his life in broad daylight with people walking by and no one could stop this cop and the other two policemen standing there aiding in this man's life being taken. And it just overwhelmed me. And, and I think, and I say that in the book, when you lose the sensitivity of a human life and the value of it, you ought not to be an activist. Because if you don't feel something, if it's just another scene and another situation that fits into your next speech, then I think that you're ineffective. It really bothered me. George Floyd brought home to me the viciousness, the insensitivity, the ruthlessness some people have toward human life. At what point in eight minutes and 46 seconds does your humanity kick in that this is a human being? Even if you thought he was doing something wrong, this is a human being begging for his life. And if the humanity in that officer never kicked in, there's something outrageous about that to me. And I don't, I, th that is why when I did the eulogy, at the end of the eulogy, I had everybody stand up for eight minutes and 46 seconds because I don't think people understood how long a time that was. And people told me later, people that had watched it on television, that I stood up two or three minutes and I, I was tired of standing. Less known pressing your knee on somebody's neck. And, and for that length of time, it never really hits you wait a minute, this is a human being, somebody's child that I'm squeezing the life out of. When coming face to face with that at that corner was overwhelming to me, I say. And, and the other thing about that eight minutes and 46 seconds is the fact that the police officer had his hands in his pockets. So it was in broad daylight on a city street and he was seemingly nonchalant about the nonchalant. tragedy nonchalant didn't matter and and later uh when i found out that you know when he was calling for his mother and i i told uh ben crump when i'd come back to minneapolis a few days later to do the funeral i said uh he said the family wants to meet you because i talked to them on the phone and uh, uh felonis his brother uh and i talked and he did my television show i said you know i want to meet his mother and Ben Crump said, his mother died. I said, what do you mean his mother died? He was calling for his mother. He said, that was what was so strange. He was calling for his mother. And mm -hmm. it almost teared me up because he was calling for someone that he had to know wasn't there. But it was like he didn't have anyone else to call. It was like calling for the, who he probably called for all his life. Mm -hmm. And as you know, as someone has covered me, uh, uh, for 30 years. My mother was uh, raised me by herself. I come out of a single parent home. I knew that feeling. I think that also uh, brought it all back to me, the emotions at the funeral, because I know what it is to call for mother, because when nobody else would help, my mother was there. Right. And I felt that that's what George had to feel for. Yep, as, this, as the son of a, of a single mom as, as well, that was a thing that that got me. It's like that's your that's your person of last resort. When you're calling for your mom, there's no one else to turn to. Um, as a result of the killing of George Floyd, we have seen. I can't remember an incident that created this much um, uh, outrage. 
national protests almost overnight in cities big and small protesting the killing of this man that everyone watched, as you said, for eight minutes and 46 seconds. One of the things that I noticed and lots of African-Americans noticed was the, the complexion of these protests. You've led many protests where it, it's just you and uh, you know the African-Americans who are marching behind you this time in, in the, the, the protests. In a lot of places, a majority of the protesters have been white. This is a multi-part question, but what do you, give me your view about that, about white Americans rallying to support African-Americans in something that we have been protesting and you know, ringing the bell on and screaming about for generations. I, I was absolutely uh, impressed uh, with the fact that so many whites literally came out and not just gave some removed sympathy, but became part of the movement. And in many cases, as you said, they were more of them than us in many cities. And I said, maybe we are getting through this time. Maybe this is the spark that will wake up a lot of the country regardless of their race, because of the outrage of this kind of scene. And I think part of it, in, in, in an ironic way, uh, Jonathan, is that this happened during a pandemic where everyone was locked down and there was no sports. So you watch the news. Most Americans were watching the news hoping it would say something had broken through and that we can go out tomorrow because people were housed in. And they had to watch this tape over and over again. And I think it, it just exploded into this movement because people say, oh, no, this I can't see. They did not see the Eric Gardner tape, maybe, because you could watch the ball game or you could go out to the local pub or you had things to do. But you couldn't go anywhere mm -hmm. when George Floyd happened. And you couldn't watch the ball game. There was no ball game. And you had to watch this. And I think the more they saw it, the more outrage they got. And just everywhere, people started marching on their own. And I said, maybe this time, maybe, because I'm still skeptical. Because again, mm -hmm. I went in early. Maybe this will come through. But it kept going and kept going. And it broke out everywhere. And it was something like being able to see what you've been trying to say a long time and maybe sometimes saying it in ways that was not uh, appealing to people because I'm expressing not only the rage of those I'm uh, speaking for in terms of the victims' families or in terms of my organization, but I'm speaking of my own pain in it. And uh, maybe this will be more of a lesson than any of us could ever articulate. And it came to me, and I wrote about this in the book, it came full circle to me when the first time I went for the vigil in Minneapolis, which we just discussed, uh, I, I went over to the shopping mall area and was talking to some of those that were marching. And I remember I walked away to the side and I was doing a live interview with uh, MSNBC. And when I finished, I got ready to walk away and somebody grabbed my, uh, the sleeve of my suit jacket. And I turned and looked, and, and, and I looked down. It was a young white girl. She looked maybe 12 years old. 
And I braced myself because I've been in marches where people would scream racial names at us or say, what are you doing here? Or you're causing trouble or something uh, that was hostile. And I braced myself waiting for the hostility. And this little girl put a little fist up and said, no justice, no peace. And that's when it, I said to myself, things may really be different this time. Maybe they will hear us. We've got to sustain this to lead this to change for real. Maybe, maybe things are changing, but, um, and this is why I love your, your phrasing of latte liberals, because I'm, I'm wondering if the latte liberals are now taking over some of these protests. And I'm thinking of that because the, the president of the NAACP chapter in Portland, Oregon, wrote an op-ed for my paper, the Washington Post op-ed page, basically expressing concern about what's now being called the gentrification of the Black Lives Matter movement and how you have white protesters putting themselves now at the center of, of the action, so much so that the message of the protest is being lost. Is there a danger that the, the latte liberals have gone from theorizing in their salons and sip, sipping, sipping lattes and just getting their exercise by getting out of the house and marching in marches? I think there is a danger. And I think that the danger is also compounded when they come with their agenda and their uh, points of this is what we want without talking to the victims and those that live in this environment all of their lives saying, no, this is what we want. And they speak for people that they don't even speak to. And I think that that's not all of the whites that joined. Many of the whites were very much Let's do this together. Right. But some of them come with an almost elitist attitude of, no, 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 I know what the best thing is. I know what the, uh, the, the social landscape is like, and I know what the political agenda would be. And they actually kidnap the movement from those that were the victims. They don't even talk to the victims, the family victims. They don't even talk to those that were there. And if you say, no, that's not what we're about, oh, they dismiss that. Y'all are just uh, grassroots, or y'all are church people, or y'all are old school, or y'all are too young. Who put them in charge of a movement that was already going that warned these kinds of things would happen? And I think that that is what I wanted to really say in this book and, and, and take them on. Because I'm like, wait a minute, we need allies. We do not need people to come and decide for us uh, what it is we want to be. It reminds me of, of Bright's book on Frederick Douglass, where he uh, went through a whole story about how when Frederick Douglass escaped slavery and finally got to New England and uh, joined some of the abolitionist movements, mm -hmm. and when he would get up and speak, at one point one of the abolitionist leaders said, wait a minute, we don't need you to be articulate. We just want you to be then as a show, like a perk. Uh, of being a slave, we'll do the talking. Like we couldn't talk for ourselves. We're not looking for better slave masters. We're looking to be free. You know, uh, so we've spent a lot of time talking about latte liberals and the progressive wing and the Democratic Party. Let's talk about Republicans because um, you, you write in your book, the Democrats, because you write a lot about the, the Democratic Party's failing 
failings uh, towards the, the black community. But you write the Democrats failing of the black community, however, doesn't vindicate the Republicans far from it. Just because you're in an abusive relationship doesn't mean you leave only to sub submit yourself to a pimp. Republicans talk all the time about how, um, you know, African-Americans and particularly black Republicans have been known to say that black Democrats are on the quote unquote plant democratic plantation. Talk more about why, why the Republicans aren't a good deal for African-Americans either, or maybe even worse. The, the, the problem with the Democratic Party is that for the most part, they say the right things, but will not back them up, will not give the same kind of, of deference and, and priority to those issues to make them happen. The problem with the Republicans is they're opposed to everything that is happening. So just like a pimp, anyone that comes out of the hood like I did, pimps exploit people that have been abused. Oh, he treats you so bad. You ought to be with me. I treat you much better. And sweet talk you into submission so they can use you. They are not trying to affirm your dignity, affirm your worth, affirm your uh, 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 status as a human being or as someone that could think. They're trying to manipulate your being misused so they can misuse you more for their own benefit. And that's the Republican. Oh, they have you on a plantation. Come over here where we can kill the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, affirmative action, all of that. Come, we're better than you. We, we will treat you better. And the betterness is to lure you and seduce you into being fodder for their agenda, which is diametrically opposed to everything. The Democrats, the challenge is to make their results match their rhetoric. The Republicans, their results and their rhetoric is antithetical to our interest. Are you surprised by how quickly Republicans have dumped everything they told us? They told us, by us I mean, America and the world, how quickly they dumped those principles in order to support now President Trump? It is mind boggling that uh, a party that uh, had certain standards and certain conduct just overnight, it wasn't even overnight in a matter of, it, it appeared almost in a matter of moments, just became a, a, a cult. We're dealing with a cult of personality where behavior didn't matter, inconsistencies didn't matter, lies didn't matter. This was the party now that claimed to be the, the evangelical followers and the strict moral code. All of that went out the window and they just, whatever this man said became their rule of conduct. And it is mind boggling. No one could have ever made me believe that these people that were the Bible thumping, go to church on Sunday, are righteous people in their own mind, though I think they misapplied a lot of what they were said in church, but how they went from that to dealing with someone who would openly lie, openly defy health experts in the middle of a pandemic openly take different positions from one hour to the next, and they would submit to all of that 
without question and get in line. You haven't even seen a major figure emerge in the Republican Party to challenge him. They all got in line. Maybe one day or, or, or another day, every once in a while, a Mitt Romney may say some or vote another way. But those were long periods of time with big gaps in between. And I'm like, I cannot believe these people that were the so-called righteous uh, people of honor and all of that mm -hmm. become the supplicants to a man who they got to check the Twitter uh, uh, pages, the Twitter thread uh, every hour to see what they believe in based on the impulses of a man who believes in nothing but himself. You know, and this is a great segue into talking about President Trump and the way you write about him, you write about him at the beginning, the middle, and somewhat at the end, because your stories, your stories in some ways are parallel. And I, I parallel, and I think you even write that you, you even write that, that you've led parallel lives. To get into talking about him and your experiences with him, I don't know if you've had a chance to read Stuart Stevens' book, um, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. And he, he writes this, to your point about evangelicals believing all these things and yet they support the president. He writes, to understand how white evangelicals could embrace Donald Trump, consider him the ultimate white megachurch preacher. The congregation has been conditioned to accept leaders who are lying, philandering frauds, who live extravagant lifestyles far above their own means. Does that sound about right? It sounds about right. And, and that's Donald Trump. Donald Trump would put his name on buildings that he didn't own, that he really just had a branding contract at best. Uh, and he had this glitzy kind of lifestyle. Uh, that was really uh, wrought with all kind of uh, financial danger and bankruptcies and all. He lived larger than life, but the reality of his businesses was one that you would teach in a business school not to practice the way he did. And he was exactly that, and he always was. I've known Donald Trump 35 years, adversarial most times, then at other times, as you know, because uh, you were in New York for a long period mm -hmm. of time, he would be with the Democrats, supported. I remember he donated to Freddie Ferrer, a Latino candidate for mayor's campaign. Congressman Rangley gave money. He came twice to my National Action Network convention, twice. Mm -hmm. And he tried to befriend you if that was who was in power. And he had, I don't believe Donald Trump believes in anything but the advancement of Donald Trump. And those experiences was down through uh, the years. I, I, I remember in the uh, uh, 70s, and I was just a young activist, and they had, uh, uh, had these repeated claims of racial discrimination in his, uh, in his real estate, uh, in, his, you know, in his buildings that he owned or managed. And uh, it, they were found by the Justice Department, was charged with that, and they had to make a settlement. And we were all at Trump. Then a few years later, when he had went into Atlantic City and wanted to uh, bring major uh, attractions there, Mike Tyson was the heavyweight champion. He wanted Tyson to fight in Atlantic City because he had the exclusive rights of the convention center where the fights would be and where he did his Miss America contest. And he and Don King partnered up to do fights to bring Tyson there. And I think because the local city council was black and I had a, a strong presence, uh, among some in the community, we had a chapter of National Action Network there. 
he's got Don King wanted us to make peace because I'd been anti-Trump on the uh, the uh, discrimination suits. I met him and we start talking. We sit ringside in fights. And this is when he became nice, sir. But even then, it was always looking for the edge, always looking for uh, what he was going to get done. Then he flips all the way back and uh, uh, with Central Park Five. And I remember he was surprised when I marched on him. I marched on the Plaza Hotel because he had just bought it during the Central Park case because he bought these four-page ads mm -hmm. calling for their execution. And his thing was, why is Sharpton meeting, uh, marching on me? I've been nice to him. We sit at, march at, at ringside together. Like sitting at ringside or knowing somebody socially means that you're going to uh, stand by silently while they call for the execution of people that you thought to be innocent and later were proven to be innocent. I was right on that. Then he flips all the way back again with birtherism. And I came out against uh, that. He would do whatever he felt worked for him at the time. And that is why, as, th as time went on, I said, not only is this man an opportunist, but this man is a racist because why wouldn't I gave him the benefit of the doubt because I learned growing, you can't just automatically call people racist. But if you're comfortable in calling black and brown people to be executed for something that it was clear to a lot of us that didn't happen, most of New Yorkers were saying they were guilty because of they had forced confessions. But a lot of people were saying there's holes in this. And when it was found out that they were innocent, he still said the city shouldn't settle with them. All the way to now you're going to claim falsely, and I know he knew he was saying it falsely, that the president of the United States was not born here. He was not a real America. This is this us against them kind of mentality. So I said, you can't be comfortable with that crowd unless deep down inside you believe that. And that's when I said, no, this man is a straight up bigot and a racist. And I talk about that in the book. Right. Ironically, when I had started hitting him hard on television, there was a meeting set up by Michael Cohen through a mutual friend of ours where he was wanting to argue with me. Why are you on television beating me down? You know better than that, Al. And I told him, because it's racist. It is absolutely a us against them thing. And we argued in his office for about 45 minutes, finally agreed to disagree. I knew when I got on the elevator leaving, he was gonna try and distort the meeting. So I got on my show that night and talked about the meeting and what I said. Of course, he uh, tried to tweet uh, that, uh, well, uh, Al Sharpton met with me and, and, and apologized for what he's been saying. So, Rev, that meeting you had with Trump, then private citizen Trump, arranged by his fix, then fixer, Michael Cohen, wasn't the first time um, that you had had interactions with, with Trump or even met with Trump. You write in the beginning of the book about how after Trump won election, he called you and wanted you to come, wanted you to, come to Trump Tower and meet with him. And if memory serves, you said no. He called me about, uh, I'd say, 30 days uh, around that time after the election. He was president-elect. And uh, I had been on Morning Joe that morning talking about him. And he called me and uh, out of the clear blue sky. I remember I was in a board meeting of Nash Action Network. I looked down, I see this number, and I just uh, uh, didn't answer. And then 
called right back. I didn't recognize the number. And I picked up and I said, I'm in a board meeting, I can't talk. And before I could hang the phone back up again, the voice said, would you hold on for the president-elect? So I kind of look and I step outside of the board uh, meeting and I said, yes. And he comes on, Al, I watched you on Morning Joe this morning. You're right, I'm an out of borough guy like you are. And look at me now. And he went on this whole braggadocia bit. He says, I want you to come to Mar-a-Lago. It wasn't Trump Tower. Uh -huh. I want you to come to Mar-a-Lago. And uh, we, we need to talk. We need to meet. You, you're going to find you can work with me. I said, I am not coming during a photo op. I'm not doing that. I don't believe you're going to do the things that I believe in. And I still am, am, am absolutely outraged with this whole birtherism that you wrote to the wires. Oh, Al, you know me. I know you. We can talk. And I, and I wouldn't go. And I refused to meet with him. And I have not uh, met with him since. When Amorosa was still working for him, he sent her to our National Action Network convention mm -hmm. uh, to speak. He's reached out several times. The only time I've spoken with him since he's been president was at the beginning of the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, I was concerned that they were not testing the homeless and the incarcerated. And I called the White House. I was doing my radio show one day and I was talking about it. And I said, I'm going to put in as a matter of record that I called the president. I called the White House and I left the message that I was concerned about the testing of those that were incarcerated because they can't social distance, they're in jail. And I was concerned about the homeless because that's all you would see in the streets of New York at that time was homeless people. Everybody else was locked in. To my surprise, about three hours later, he called me back. And I said to him what my concerns was. And he says, well, I hear you. I'm not making any commitments, but I hear you. And I explained why I felt that you've got to do this because they're human beings. They can't socially distance in jail. And homeless people don't have uh, the facilities to go get tested. And there needs to be a program on it. All right, Al, we'll follow up. And then he uh, went, oh, I catch your show sometime. You're kind of hard on me, but hey. You're over there with, uh, and he made his derogatory statement about MSNBC, and we hung up. And that's the only time hmm. he and I talks uh, by phone or in person since he's been president. But I am absolutely convinced that Donald Trump is a bigot. That's who he is. He's comfortable with it, and he's unapologetic about it. You know, one of the other meetings that you write about is um, meetings where you bumped into each other. It was, it was one of the anniversaries of a taping, 40th anniversary of SNL. Right. And um, uh, Sarah Palin was there on the red carpet and the two of you talked and you, you say he grabbed, your, grabbed you in a vice-like grip and pulled you in close Smile. This and was after the meeting that Michael Cohen had said. After the Michael Cohen meeting. Where yeah, he it was a few weeks after that. And I had uh, gone down the red carpet, I ran into Sarah Palin, and we find everybody's in the actual uh, big studio that uh, the, they did the 40th anniversary. And as I'm going to my seat, uh, I see Trump, and he's sitting there with his wife. And uh, I said, okay, this is going to be interesting because I had been pounding on him since that meeting. And uh, he leaned over, he was sitting like on the front row of this section. He leaned over the railing and I stopped and he grabbed me in a thumb shake, a grip. And he looked at me and he says, you got to do what you got to do. 
and I got to do what I got to do. And that's when I knew he was committed that he was going to use this bigoted birtherism line and whatever else to go all the way where he was going politically. And then he was uh, not formally running, but it was clear he was going to run for president. I said, he's dug in. And uh, I nodded, I said, all right, we'll do what we got to do. And I walked onto my seat and that was it. You know, um, we're gonna use the time that we have remaining to talk about you uh, and what you write about yourself in, in, in the book. One of the things that I found really interesting was the advice you got from Coretta Scott King, how she pulled you, pulled you aside and sat you down, which you thought was gonna be a nice, amiable conversation, but it was a whole lot more than that, wasn't it? Well, the context is, uh, as, as you know, but many viewers may not, is that I started in the uh, King movement in the North. I was born and raised in, in Brooklyn. And so I was always a, a huge admirer of Dr. King. I was youth director at 13 years old of the New York chapter of his organization. And uh, so I always wanted to be close with the King family. They were, to me, uh, movement royalty. And I started working in my 20s with Martin Luther King III. We're about two or three years apart. And he kind of like got me and his mother together. He finally convinced her in the late 90s to come to the Nash Action Network convention and she agreed to keynote our dinner that year. And I went up to uh, get her to come down and she says, she had a very regal presence. She said, sit down a minute, Al, we sat down. And uh, I was thinking we would go through the niceties and she started saying, explain to me what you did in this case. Explain to me what you did in this movement. Explain to me this. Why did you say this? Why did you use this language? And I would start explaining. She says, but you come out of the King tradition. We don't use those, those kind of words. We may have these feelings, but we don't say things that could be misinterpreted. And I said, but Mrs. King, and I would try to explain and rationalize, and she wouldn't buy any of my rationalizing. And she finally leaned forward in her chair and says, don't you understand words have power? And Martin is, is uh, sitting nearby, and uh, she really said to me, if you are going to help you and Martin and your generation continue this movement, you've got to not only be right, you've got to act right, You've got to say it right, and you've got to guard your tongue because you're speaking for more than yourself. You're speaking for a tradition that we are trying to bring what is right to this country. The theme that my husband and I used, and she's talking about Dr. King, was to save America's soul. And we've got to try to be as pure in our own souls ourselves. And I, I think, you know, when I, I grew up at a time where they still would use straps to discipline me. No, no whipping my mother ever gave me uh, uh, got through to me like Mrs. King. This is Coretta Scott King telling me this. And right. from that day, I started trying to be careful with my language and understand it. And sometimes I would still get angry and I could almost hear in my head her saying, words have power. Are you going to continue this tradition? And I started a whole journey of self-discipline because of Mrs. King. And I write about that in the book. Mm -hmm. And she, I think, was never given the credit she should have been given as the co-leader of the movement with her husband. You know, as I said at the beginning of our conversation about your book, that, you know, the last part of the book is advice. 
to activists, wannabe activists, but also young activists coming, coming up in the little bit of time that we have left. One line you wrote leapt out at me for its self-awareness. And um, it was where you say, lastly, and this is particularly difficult, I know, it's important to do a vanity test every once in a while. Speaking personally, sometimes my vanity outran my sanity and I had to check myself. Why, I, go ahead. I think that what I was saying there is sometimes you can get so caught up in the publicity and the fame, you go back to the neighborhood and everybody knows you, oh, you're doing good and da, 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 that you start playing to the evening news rather than playing to making sure the issue is moving forward. It's all right to have ego. All of us have egos. We wouldn't be in public life. But when your ego outruns your agenda, then you are losing your effectiveness. And that's what I had to start checking myself. Am I saying this to get a sound bite that I know will make the six o'clock news? Or am I saying this to really try to get the laws changed and to change the situation and to express what the people are feeling and needed to be said? And that, I think, is the advice I give a lot of young activists. It's all right to get to be known. It's all right to be good at, at attracting media, but don't do it for that reason. Let that be the means, not the end. Not getting on the evening news is not the aim and objective. It's using the evening news, if you can get it, to really put a message out there that can lead to real change. And that's why you did, that's why you, you did Saturday, you've done Saturday Night Live twice. Hosted, right? That's I hosted the... it once and I, and I opened it another time and I've done a couple of skits, but yeah. And that's the reason why you did it. It was so to the bigger, it was giving the, the message a bigger platform. I did it when, when they called me, uh, uh, Lauren uh, called me and, and invited me to host it. And uh, everyone on my staff said, no, don't do that. They're going to make mockery of you. You don't want to come off as a clown. And I said, yeah, but I also want people to know that I can laugh at myself and still operate on that platform because they always want to just pinpoint and stereotype you as the angry black man. And I wanted Americans to understand, yeah, I know how to laugh. I know how to sing and dance. I did a little James Brown dance and all mm -hmm. that, but I still I believe that. in these firm things. And uh, it ended up coming off very well. And then you also write, in terms of part of your vanity test, a time you said no to doing television, even when more money was offered to you and you still said no. And that was, you turned down an offer to be on The Apprentice. Why did you say no to that? Donald Trump's The, uh, the Apprentice had, uh, and it was the hottest show going then, to come on and, and be on the, on the Apprentice. I said, no, there's no redeeming value there. There's no trying to uh, certainly get issues out, but there's no even redeeming value of showing that I'm not just hostile. This is just playing to Donald Trump and uh, to be fired or not or whatever the case may be. So I said, no, they called back again and uh, talked to Rachel Nordlinger who handled press for me the last 25 years. And they, she said, he won't do it. Finally, Donald Trump called me himself twice. Al, you got to do this. We'll give you more than the other contestants at all. And I wouldn't do it because I felt 
there was no value to it. It would have been great for my vanity. It would have been one of the hottest shows on television. I wouldn't do it. I also turned down Dancing with the Stars. I you were offered no Dancing with the Stars? I was offered twice to dance with the stars. And I, <laughs> I, I told that. Rachel, I don't see any value in uh, while they're shooting people in the street for me to be running around on stage in tights, dancing with somebody. Uh, Rev, you are, um, you're, you're a preacher, but also you are a, an anchorman. So, you know, we've got less than, th probably less than two, two minutes left. For someone, who picks up your book, Rise Up, what is the, the number one message you want them to take away from this book? The number one message is that we are at a crossroads in this country on which direction we're going to go, a direction that started many years ago, decades ago, that was capsulized in the 60s with Martin King and Lyndon Johnson to open up a great society for everyone, or the one that is symbolized now by Donald Trump of trying to close society and make it for the rich, the white, and the male. You need to decide which road you want to help make the country go and then rise up and actively help push the country on the right road. And I share some experiences, but I share some policy, and I share some real ways that you at whatever level in, your, in the comfort of your own home can rise up and help put this nation on this right path. I really believe we're in a very dangerous and precarious time. And if we don't choose the right road, we could see this country go back into some zone that it will be difficult to recover from. It's time for everybody, wherever they are, to choose the right road and to rise up and help make it happen. Well, Reverend Sharpton, in your book, you tackle a whole lot of issues, environmental justice, environmental racism, toxic masculinity, the relationship between the African-American community and the LGBTQ community, intersectionality. It is all here in your book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads, forward by Michael Eric Dyson. Uh, my old friend and colleague, Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you very, very much. The only thing about being your old friend is I can't figure out how I keep being older than you the longer we know each other. I just can't find a way to make you catch up. <laughs> it ain't ever going to happen, Rev. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.